We're starting a seven-week sermon series on Revelation. Not all of Revelation. I'm not crazy. Just the, the, there's at the first there, there's the seven churches that, uh, that he writes little brief letters to. And at the end of each letter, he'll say something to the effect of all who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just one letter, like today we're looking at the letter to Ephesus. It's not just one letter to Ephesus and that was specifically for Ephesus. What God wants us to hear is what he has to say to everybody so that we can all learn from it. And so I'm, I'm wondering, what can we, the Mineral Springs Church of Christ, learn from the letter Jesus writes, or Jesus through John, writes to Ephesus or to Smyrna. That was actually turned not Smyrna on the outskirts of the Queen. That's an old school Church of Christ reference. I just weeded some of you out. Um, there, there's a the Smyrna or Laodicea or Thyatira. Maybe you've always wondered how to pronounce Thyatira. Well, that's it. So there, there are so, there's so much to learn in these in these letters, these seven, these letters to these seven churches for us, not just as individuals. While that may be true, we'll learn something as individuals, but as a church, what can we learn as a church? Well, I think quite a bit. Now, the, before we get in, I say revelation, you say scary, right? You say, whoa, whoa, ease up. I'm not a super Christian. Uh, let me just say this. Revelation, if you want to learn about it, go to any Christian bookstore. Go to the Revelation section. See all those books? None of them can help you. <laughs> Revelation is uh, what they call apocalyptic literature. Now, you hear apocalyptic and you think Arnold Schwarzenegger, ah, you know, shooting things and, and zombies and you think, you think all of that. That's not apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a literary genre. See, back in the, in the first century, if you would have said apocalyptic, they would have thought something like haiku or drama or comedy. Apocalyptic was a way to write a thing. And so sometimes we hear apocalyptic in our language of an apocalyptic letter. Our language makes us think, oh, that's scary end time stuff. That's what's going to happen at the end. Well, that's not what apocalyptic was. Apocalyptic, and I will quit saying that word soon, I promise. Apocalyptic, but you should try it. It's fun. Apocalyptic is one of those, is, is a genre that takes... Um, well, let's phrase it like this. You remember what a, a, a parable is? Those of you who grew up in church and the teacher would say a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's how all Bible class teachers talk where I'm from. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay. Easy enough. It's a story about, you know, well, a farmer went out and did some things with his with this with the soil and put some seeds in and this happened and that happened. And it's supposed to tell us by explaining what's happening on earth. It's supposed to give us some sort of sense of what's happening in heaven. Apocalyptic is just a parable that's flipped on its head. Apocalyptic literature is when is when a when they use a cosmic story. 
Like a big story with stars and demons and dragons and, and big imagery. With an earthly meaning. Apocalyptic is when they took a, a, a broad, cosmic, big story to tell you something about what was happening right now. Right in this very place. It is my opinion, and, the, and I've, I've studied this really hard, and I've been wrong on things that I've studied really hard before, so I could be wrong. But it is my opinion that Revelation is not a book about the future, but it's a book about what was happening to the people who first read it. We did a summer series two years ago. On, we went all the way through the book of Revelation. And I'm sorry, you missed that. Um, but we're just going to do these seven churches. And there's going to be some language about lampstands. And about uh, there's going to be some language that you're not under, going to understand. Do not get distracted by the pretty stuff. Because when, if you can walk away from Revelation with a thing in your hand that is applicable to your situation today, especially if you can find the thing that was applicable to their situation when it was being written, you will have the truth. I will say this much. It is interesting to me that all of the books about Revelation that say that it's a, a, it's a, it's something that's in the future, and it's, it's, you can tell the signs are coming. It's not. Is it always about America? Is that a red flag for anybody else? That no one's ever saying, you know, Uzbekistan has some things going on in the parliament that is really interesting to Revelation. Uzbekistan is a country. So, it's also, what word did he just use? That's fine. It was the teenagers. Uh, but there, um, it's always about the United States. Well, the president seems to be. Quit it. It's never that. It's never, if the Bible revolves around you, you can be sure you're reading your Bible wrong. The Revelation is talking specifically to a group of people. And notice what he says here. Well, now, oh, hold on. I can work it. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The seven churches. So he's writing a thing down and he's sending it to them. The way we often interpret Revelation would mean that when they received that, they read it and said, huh, I don't know. I know this has to do with something with a president or with a congress, but I'm not sure what those things are. I know this has to do something with the United States, but I'm not sure where that place is. We will, uh, we will read this section of Revelation, and you should read all of Revelation like so. Assuming that the people in Ephesus, the people in Sardis, the people in Smyrna, the people in Pergamum, the people in Thyatira, the people in Philadelphia, and the people in Laodicea, Laodicea understood what they read when they read it. You've got to interpret it from that way or... Revelation will turn into something that the writer didn't think it was. So, first letter to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus. 
Ephesus was a fantastic city. Ephesus was a city that, that, uh, that had been moved three times. Once, once they, they were inland a bit and then they, they moved into their, uh, to a port right on the coast. And so Ephesus was the, the financial uh, center of, of, the, of Asia Minor, what is now uh, modern day Turkey. It was the the hub of everything. If you wanted to take something from Galilee to Rome, you had to go through a port in Ephesus. If you wanted to go from from Israel to to Rome, you had to run up, even if you're on boat, and take a stop at a port in Ephesus. Ephesus, being moved to the port, made an extremely important city. And those people uh, were were under the impression that the emperor was God. That's typically what you do whenever you're succeeding financially is the people who run whatever it is that you're succeeding financially at become your God. And the people believed that the emperor was God. And to not believe that the emperor was a God would get you killed in the city of Ephesus. Quick side note. All of these cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All of these cities were cities that had a court in them. These were the seven cities in Asia Minor that had a court that if you were tried as a Christian, if you were tried, like if you didn't believe that, that Domitian or Nero were um, the, the, a god, that you wouldn't pay homage to these gods, then you could be tried in that, very, that same day and you could die that same day. If you did that in some other city, they would, they would apprehend you, take you, you'd have a trial day. But in these cities, death could happen Wednesday. The day you said it. The day you refused to say Caesar is Lord. It could have happened that very day. But here's his letter to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Don't get distracted by the pretty things. Alright? Move forward. I know your... If you want to know what those mean, you can come talk to me later. And I'll send you to somebody. I know your deeds... Your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And have found them false. I know that you have worked really hard. See, in their environment, they were in an environment where they were, they were, most of the people were Christians. That's not, a very small amount of the people were Christians. In the city of over a million people, there's probably less than 500 Christians, if that. Tiny, small population of Christians. And the world is pressing in on them to tell them, tell them, no, Jesus isn't alive. Caesar, Jesus is the Lord. Caesar is Lord. And they, the whole time they were saying, no, Caesar is Lord. And a lot of times what they would run into is they would have these, uh, these people come in and they would say, okay, well... Okay, yeah, let's say Jesus is Lord, but let's also say Caesar is Lord, because Jesus is Lord, uh, we believe, and Caesar is Lord, keeps us from dying. So let's say both things. And the devoted Christians in Ephesus, the devoted Christians in Ephesus would stand up and they would say, no, 
Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. In our modern understanding of Lord, sometimes we, get, we weaken that word. Lord should be, when we hear Lord in the Bible, we should hear King. Because their dominant ruler was called Lord. And when you call Jesus Lord, you're saying, Jesus is my King. He said, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. You have worked through these people. You cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. There are people going around saying uh, in, to, to counteract this Christian movement saying, no, 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 we're apostles. We were sent by Paul. And let me tell you this. And they would say, are you really? And they would test them, prod and question. And they would test them and they would find out. They, they are false. And look what he says. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I think this letter to the church in Ephesus can actually be very uh, helpful to the church in Mineral Springs. Because in Mineral Springs, we like to talk about grace. We like to, talk about, we like to take in any old sinner. Doesn't matter how old you are as a sinner, we'll take you. Because we're all sinners. And we'll take any old one. This, this place is a place that can um, that at times we have to stand up for ourselves. We have to stand up and say, no, what we believe is true is that the grace of Jesus can save us even though we are broken. What we believe is true is that we do not have it all together. Now you think that's a, that's a groundbreaking statement, but that's not a ground... That seems like you... Start that sentence over. You would think that wasn't a groundbreaking statement to say we don't have it all together. But in churches, sometimes that's hard to say. Because sometimes you want to get you want to appear as though you've got it all together. And any, any sort of appearance of, of, well, they don't have it all together. That just means we're human. We're humans that need the grace of Jesus. And we can fight and fight and fight for this message. Because I think it's a message worth fighting for. And he says to the people in Ephesus, you guys have persevered. You have not backed down from the good news. You have not backed down from Jesus his Lord. You have not backed down. But, sometimes he has these. It sounds like he's saying, wow, you've done great. But then he'll have a... But yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Some of your versions may say your first love, but that um, that gives the impression that you're forsaking Jesus. But the, the the way the wording is is you have forsaken your the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a way of saying you will no longer be a valid church. I won't call you my church. So what we got in Ephesus is we got these people who are standing up for what is right. Standing up for what is right. They believe what is true and holy and they are standing up for what is right and Jesus commends them for that. But then he says, but watch out. I've got this against you. If you don't straighten this up, I'm backing away from you altogether. You don't love people like you used to. If the battle 
has worn you down of doing what is right and preaching and teaching what is right and, and standing up for what is right has worn you down to the point where you don't love the people you disagree with. That is the most dangerous place to be. Because what will happen is you'll start, you'll start, you, you will take confidence and you'll take solace in the fact that, that you're right still. But I'm right. Yeah, you're right. And you're wrong. Just like everybody is. Everybody is right and everybody is wrong. But if we just focus on our correctness and only focus on other people's incorrectness, we will fail to love them. And Jesus says, if you fail to love them like you loved them at first, now, you got to remember, these people were converted from paganism to Christianity. I was converted from a child Christian to a preteen Christian to a teen Christian to an adult Christian. Like, my, my life changed wasn't like theirs. They went from hearing a message that was all about themselves to hearing a message that was about loving others and loving God. <coughs> In the name of Jesus. So this was a complete transition for them. And at first they were on fire. Not necessarily. Yes for the truth. But it was coupled with love. They loved people so much. Even the people they disagreed with. I think this is the hardest thing to do. Because we were raised in a culture, in a country, that values being correct so much. And now, when we find somebody that's incorrect, we, we have to squish them. Pummel them until they realize it. I saw a cartoon just the other night. Uh, where, Yes, I just read cartoons. Uh, there's a little drawing, and um, there's a woman, apparently a woman off out of picture, and the husband on the computer. And she says, honey, are you coming to bed? And he said, no, this is important. And she said, what is it? He said, someone on the internet is wrong about something. I've got to tell them otherwise. We've, we've just got to try this. Just say something you don't believe. Like, pick something you don't believe. Something maybe you disagree with. And just say it on Facebook. If you have Facebook, just say it on Facebook. Um, at this church, we believe Facebook is a sin. But, I'm just kidding. Uh, say it, and then let it sit for an hour and count. How many people that love you are... Nah! That's the response. They use other words, but that's basically what it amounts to. Watch it. Bam, 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 bam. It'll happen. People, people will lose their mind if they think you're incorrect. We lose our minds when we think other people are incorrect. And Paul or John says uh, to the church in Ephesus, "You guys, you're standing up for the truth. 
But what is, what is your worst ailment? And the one that's threatening to ruin you. Your worst ailment. It's going to bring you to death. Is that you've lost the ability to love the people you disagree with. You've lost the ability to love the people who don't think like you, who weren't raised like you. You're standing up for, against these false teachers, these false apostles, and you've learned to hate them. Notice he doesn't say, quit standing up for the truth, or quit, quit making sure that, uh, that they, they understand the truth, that they understand Jesus, quit testing the false teachers. No, he commends them for that. But they're, they're, what they fall down on and what can happen to us as, as, as we stand up for what we believe in is that our message can be we, God loves everybody except you who don't think God loves everybody. God has, God's grace is big enough to save everybody except those of you who don't think His grace is big enough to save everybody. We can get really caught up in condemning people who condemn. We can get really caught up judging people who judge. We can get really caught up in not loving people who don't love. And for the church in Ephesus, that was a sin that Jesus said, I will back out of there if y'all don't straighten this up. You want to be a church that's known... For loving other people. Love the people who don't love you. You want to be a church that's known for teaching grace? Show grace to people who don't show grace to you. Sure, stand up for the truth. There's a, there's a big difference. In saying to someone... I think, I think God loves you and other people more than you even realize. I think His grace is bigger than you even understand. To someone you know their name and you know their, their, their parents and you, you've gotten to know them. There's a big difference from saying that and saying, You know those people who don't think grace is that big? One is love, the other is sin. And we can be a people who love unconditionally. And a people who stand up for what we believe in. I think our modern culture make, thinks you have to choose. They think you have to make a decision between whether or not you're going to uh, love unconditionally or stand up for the truth. I think it's possible to do both. But it's going to take you having dinner with someone before you have a debate with them. It's going to take learning them and learning their relationships and having a relationship. Listen, not maliciously. This is not like so, so that, so that eventually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a relationship with them and spring up with the truth one day. Surprise! You're wrong. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed all that food I fed you, because you're wrong. No, it's it's loving people is just as important as standing is is 
Standing up for the truth. Just as important. And so we do both. And you say, Benjamin, I, I don't know really how to do both. Well, love them first. Wait. Wait on the truth thing until you can work on that loving thing. Because truth without love is not received well. Love without truth for a period of time can grow a relationship. You may just have to figure it out, size it up as you go. It is important to stand up for the truth. And I think this church is amazing at standing up for what they believe in. One of the things, one of the reasons I came here... I also think this church is really good at loving people that aren't like them. I'll, I'll tell you where we, and I say we because this is me. I struggle with this and I just figure if I struggle with it, other, other people will. What I really wrestle with is loving the people who are living exactly like I used to live. Does anyone else feel that way? Like really deeply loving the people who still judge like I used to judge. That is something I've I've that have taken a lot that's taken a lot of prayer and a lot of serious, intentional interacting with those people that are like that. Talking about other things other than our belief systems. Talking about football and the weather and their kids and their grandkids. Listening to their stories about what happened to them this weekend. It takes time. And you can be sure that the more, the, the more love people feel from you, the more truth they will see in you. The more love people feel from you, the more truth they will see in you. There won't be a moment when you're just loving people, loving people, loving people that you think, all right, now when am I going to have to flip the truth switch? Because in the end, the most true thing we can say about God is that we love somebody else. Because He loved them first. That's as true as it gets. It's really hard to love people you disagree with. It's even harder to love people who think y'all's disagreement is sending you to hell. But he says, you've got to return to your first love. You've got to return to the thing that how you loved in the first place. I commend you for the truth, he says, but you, you, can't, you can't do this truth thing without the love thing. That's not church. So this week, find somebody who disagrees with you. Not, notice I phrase it like that. It's not that you disagree with them, because that's a lot of people. But someone you know disagrees with you. 
Like they, they feel it. And then love them. Love them. Jesus says, if you love your enemies, you will heap burning coals on their head. Now, we often misinterpret this scripture because we'll say, we'll say, yeah, fires him up. Like, like Wiley Coyote, is letting him fire, his hair's on fire. Got him. I love them, and ah, they'll, they'll be confused. Uh, this was a um, technique in the, in, if you were a shepherd, uh, or just out in the field in the night, in the cold, um, if you had to travel from one place to the other, you couldn't just take a warm fire with you. So you took the, the burning coals, wrapped a turban around your head, took the coals and set them in the turban, warmed your whole body from head to toe. Jesus is saying, love your enemy, it will warm them from head to toe. It will do a good thing for them. Jesus even said in that same sermon, You're, that's a, that's, this is what's going to happen because God does this. God show, gives rain to the good and the bad. He gives sun to the good and the bad, which in an agricultural society are both good things, rain and sun. He's not saying, this isn't, don't interpret Charlie Brown into the text. Just because there's a rain cloud overhead doesn't mean bad things are happening. God functions this way. He does good for the good and the bad. So should you. I want to move away from being that church. Um, oh, Church of Christ, y'all are the ones that don't use instruments. Yeah, that's, that we, don't, we don't use those. But I don't want to be known for that anymore. I'm very tired of being known for that. That's such an easy thing to do, is to not play an instrument. No one trips and accidentally plays an instrument, unless it's a timpani and you're up above it. <laughs> but I want to be that church. I want, yo, yo, the Church of Christ. Y'all, y'all really love people. Man, I want to be that. And I think y'all are, y'all are doing that so well. Keep it up. And if you've been struggling with the people who disagree with you and dislike you for it, today's the day to repent. If you've never experienced the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, that this is the day, this is the day to experience that, to be united with Him in baptism. Today is the day. Whatever you need this morning, please come forward while we stand and sing.